Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, a professor, and a chaplain, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians to think Christianly about all of life. So on this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you to lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Yeoman, and today on the show, we're going to wrestle with a subject that literally is a life or death matter, and one that Christians have long debated, capital punishment. So while capital punishment is legal in some U.S. states and no Canadian province, it is still valuable to consider a biblical position on this matter because it has a direct bearing on the gospel and really on our view of justice. So Aaron, this is going to be an interesting discussion today, I know. Um, Can you explain to our listeners what is capital punishment and why are you in favor of it? Yeah, well, I recognize this is an emotional issue. It's a socially significant issue and it's a spiritually important issue. And we want to dissect it with an awareness in mind that uh, there's going to be perhaps some emotional responses on the other end of the mic from our listeners. But I want to just kind of digest this from a biblical perspective. Capital punishment, essentially, the word capital is derived from a Latin word, which means head or life. And so when you talk about capital punishment, the implication is an extreme or chief penalty for certain heinous crimes. And essentially, I support it in some circumstances. It's not to be applied to every crime that a person commits, but in some circumstances, because it reflects the gospel, let's not forget God's ultimate punishment for sin is capital punishment in in that sense. Romans 3.23, wages of sin is death. So, um, it's, it's, it's really important for people to understand that from God's vantage point, the, the, uh, sorry, Romans 6.23, that, the ultimate penalty that people experience for their sin is, is death. And so that, that theme of death as a result of sin is also woven into some biblical texts. So we want to look at God's word uh, today and to study it and to try to demonstrate from scripture that it actually is the, the proper just punishment for certain crimes. By the way, I've, I've taught on this subject in in a couple ethics classes over the years. So I just want to say right out of the gates, I'm not going to be referencing source material because I can't remember half of it. So it, it may be that some of the things that I share are from long forgotten authors or other people's work. So I don't need to take original credit for, for, for this necessarily. But I wanted to mention that at the beginning because I think that there's a variety of sources I've used in the past to help, that's helped to shape my view on the issue. That's good. And I can guarantee you the source was not me. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, it could have been. It could have been. Oh, well, yeah, well, let's hope so. Anyways, um, it probably would be helpful to begin presenting the arguments used by those who want capital punishment to be abolished, for it to be ended. And um, so what are some of those basic arguments against capital punishment? So essentially, we speak of abolitionists and we speak of retentionists. So those that want capital punishment abolished and those that want it retained. And there are many, many, many arguments and rationales presented on both sides of the the discussion. But I'll start with, uh, you know, as you've requested with sort of the arguments that are against capital punishment. So there, there are many. I'll try to go through these um, fairly quickly because there's quite a few and then just make a comment on them. So the first would be that it's it's a fearsome sort of barbaric method. There has been different leagues and groups and organizations put together over the years that have um, uh, spoken out against capital punishment. Back in, I came across a a quote from 1914. And back then they used to put some pretty fancy titles on their societies and social engagement agencies. This was one from the Meeting of the Men's International Theosophical League of Humanity. So that's quite dated. (laughs) And they said, quote, capital punishment is a barbarous survival Uh, From a less enlightened and refined era, it's incongruous and incompatible with our present standard of civilization and humanity. It has been abolished by many states and countries, and we must look forward to the day when other governments will follow suit, end quote. So looking at the, um, you know, the electric chair 
hanging, which can result in decapitation, firing squads, maybe potential for mismanaged toxic drug combinations, lethal injections. Many have suggested that it's um, it's just barbaric. Well, murder's barbaric, rape is barbaric, uh, pedoph- pedophilia is barbaric, and there should be, I believe, an efficient and humane way that f- people guilty of uh, capital crimes that result in capital punishment should be put to death. It doesn't need to be, uh, you know, th- some of the torturous methods that past civilizations have used. But the reality is from a, if you're going to just punish people socially, you can be barbaric in that respect too. You can just throw them in an isolation box for the rest of their lives, or you can be somewhat humane about it. And in the same way, when someone is guilty of a capital crime and should be put to death, I hate to use this language, but there are efficient and humane ways of doing that. So it doesn't have to be, obviously it's, gross regardless and no one likes to think about these things if they're normal but it's it, it is important that um, we not stand for or against capital capital punishment because it's gross mm-hmm. it's an issue of justice and what does the bible teach on these on this subject others would say a very pragmatic argument it doesn't protect society or deter crime well First of all, that shouldn't be central to our reasoning because it doesn't matter really uh, because we're not pragmatically driven, we're biblically driven. But at the same time, I think that's a false, a disproven argument. A, in other words, A, if God commands it, it has to happen. So that's where you got to ground your argumentation. If God commands it, it has to happen. But B, we know that around... 88%, some studies have demonstrated, of rapists uh, Mm re-offend. And across the board for people that have been thrown in jail for federal crimes on a federal level, about 12% of women and 24% of men will re-offend within two years and be behind bars again. So let's just say people were, some of the more heinous crimes that I think would be, biblically would be worthy of capital punishment would be like, uh, sexual abuse of a child, obviously murder. If if people that commit those kinds of crimes, if twenty four percent of them reoffend in the, especially if it's in the same crime, well, that they wouldn't be reoffending if they had been properly punished the first time through through capital punishment. Others would say it doesn't provide an opportunity for rehabilitation. Um, that's a reasonable argument, but the role of the state is not to rehabilitate you. And I would also say that there, there always is time for repentance and repentance, frankly, is much more important than rehabilitation. Paul, and I'll reference this later, I think it's in Acts 25, basically says, if I'm, uh, you know, justly deserving of death, you know, then, then put me to death. But if not, let me go. So the, a person, one of the demonstrations, this might sound kind of odd, but a person who has committed a grievous offense, who is guilty then of, who's declared to be guilty in a court of law, and let's say we're subject to capital punishment, if that person really was interested in rehabilitation or truly was repentant, they would accept the consequences of their crime. They wouldn't go through endless appeal process just to try to get off the hook. They would say, look, I murdered that person in a fit of rage. I deserve to die. That would be a demonstration of true repentance and uh, a demonstration that they were interested in rehabilitation. Um, Others would say there's two there's too many uh, possibilities of a judicial error. I agree with that. So there have been times when people have been put away for life sentences and it's discovered later through DNA evidence that they were in fact not guilty. So I would not be in favor of capital punishment based upon um, anything other than first person eyewitness testimonies, which actually is one of the reasons why that's in the Ten Commandments. Don't don't bear false witness because if you do, the whole judicial system collapses. Mm-hmm. Or someone that's caught in the act. But if it's all circumstantial and you're not a one hundred and ten percent sure, I would not be in favor of that. I'd be in favor of a life sentence or something like that. Because then, if further evidence comes forward, you can reverse 
the consequence, but you can't reverse the consequence of capital punishment. Um, others would say that, well, if you take the life of someone through capital punishment, let's say a murderer, you've become a murderer. Well, that that's a very biblically ignorant. Um, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments say you shall not murder, but that's a reference to intentional unjust homicide. There are several different words used in the Hebrew Bible to refer to the taking of life. The, the Bible does not forbid the taking of life in a just war, for example. Uh, thou shalt not murder is a different kind of taking of human life than if you accidentally turn a corner, run someone over with your car. That's unintentional mm -hmm. homicide. So there are different kinds of life taking some of which are justifiable, some of which are accidental, and some of which are not justifiable. The Ten Commandments is basically saying you can't just go out and murder people and take life, but it doesn't mean that in certain circumstances, the state, for example, can't sanction the taking of life or an army can't sanction the taking of a life. I'll also address it a little bit later, but some would say, well, Jesus says, forgive your enemies. I'm going to differentiate there between an individual ethic so how do I respond when I'm personally offended for the cause of the gospel, as opposed to what does a state do? What does a government do when one of their citizens becomes an ax murderer, for example, it's two very different scenarios. Still yet others would say it's based upon anger or vengeance, um, that anger, you know, begats anger and violence begats violence. I think that's a weak argument as well, because if we're talking about a properly functioning judiciary, there's no emotion really involved in that. Mm -hmm. It's, sir, you've committed this crime. Therefore, we're going to mete out this punishment. You know, you're going to pay a fine right through to we're going to take your life. And that doesn't need to be completely dispassionate, but it's not based upon anger or vengeance. It, it has to be based on justice and a proper understanding. Obviously, there's some righteous anger there, but a proper understanding that certain crimes and behaviors justify the loss of your own life. One other thing would be people will appeal to um, you know, historic circumstances where you know, a certain state puts 13-year-olds to death or something for stealing a loaf of bread. So capital punishment becomes a cure-all for everything. No, the Bible actually provides parameters for what crimes are worthy of cap capital punishment and which ones aren't. Another argument against it, well, why are we even having the conversation because the law of your land might forbid it? Well, as Christians, we like to have conversations about righteousness and biblical matters, regardless of whether or not our country agrees with it or not, because part of our responsibility is not only to understand biblical truth and how God thinks about these issues, but also through electoral processes and systems over time to push our governments to act in a way that's more reflective of biblical law. So if we just never have this conversation, then capital punishment is not going to ever be reinstated in any Canadian province or territory or in many of the U.S. states. But if we start to have this conversation and we convince people that it is a biblical response to certain heinous crimes, then over time, incrementally, we hope to see change in the social order. Another one, which uh, I remember when I was talking to one of my daughters about this, uh, maybe a couple of years ago, she's like, but dad, this removes any possibility for further evangelism, right? Like this person is now dead. Well, I get that from a heart level. You, you, you want to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ, but we, we do believe in the sovereignty of God. And if in this life you do A, which results in B, i.e. you kill someone, and as a result you have your life taken, we believe that if it's in God's sovereign plan to see that person come to faith in Jesus Christ, that'll happen before the day of their death. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also a danger there. If we, if we say on you know, in, in cases of capital punishment, well, we can't, we can't have this person executed because they're robbing them of the chance to, to hear the gospel. Well, it's not the healthiest environment to spend the rest of your life in jail uh, around some very bad people. So that could 
maybe not reduce to zero, but it would greatly reduce your human ability to hear and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So penalties always reduce opportunities. That's why they're called penalties. They reduce opportunities maybe to have a family or to um, work or to worship publicly. There, This is the very nature of a penalty. This is all, all, obviously the ultimate penalty, but it is nevertheless, unless you you don't believe in any sort of penology, you're not interested in punishing people for anything, there's always going to be a reduction of opportunity when you are incarcerated or punished in some way, shape, or form. This is, again, the ultimate punishment. The wages of sin is death mm-hmm. <laughs> here. The wages of your crime is death, but God can still work in that process. And just like the thief on the cross who in his final hours, humanly speaking, probably because he knew he was going to die, the the statistics on that were 100%, he was going to die, he actually put his faith in Christ and repented of his sin. So the, the notion that, let's say, I will be put to death tomorrow or next week or next month because I've killed someone, there's a pretty good motivator to, to get right with God, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And we see, actually, we see a lot of people have death, or a lot, people do have deathbed conversions, like they've lived a rebellious life. And when they realize their time is up, that triggers things that otherwise wouldn't. Right? And it would be a wise thing for a state executing prisoners to allow them to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ if they haven't heard it before prior to their execution. So there is an opportunity for that. Mm. A few other arguments, and again, I'm kind of whipping through these quick, but there's quite a few. People point to Cain. Well, Cain killed his brother. He wasn't put to death. Uh, King David killed uh, Uriah the Hittite by extension. He wasn't put to death. Uh, I would just quickly respond to that. There was no state. There was no government in place to execute Cain. It's an exception to the rule because in Genesis 9, 6, it says, for whoever sheds sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. Obviously, one wouldn't expect that his mom and dad are going to do the executing necessarily. So that's a narrative. It's true that Cain was not executed. In fact, God protected him in those early days as one of the first people ever born. But if we look at the clear didactic teachings of scripture, we're going to see that uh, capital execution is not only recommended, but it's commanded in many circumstances. And that's not just reserved for the Old Testament. And then, of course, with King David, he also deserved a punishment. Unfortunately, as a result of his crimes, the Lord took the life of his young child. And so right there, we have the wages of sin being death in terms of the penalty uh, meted out, not directly to David, but to, to the child. And then we have uh, also the reality that David was the head of state. So unless he sanctions his own execution, uh, the Lord chose to punish him in other ways. Mm -hmm. Still others would say the ethics of Jesus cannot be reconciled with capital punishment. It lacks mercy. It lacks a restorative quality. It's a failure to turn the other cheek. Again, we have to differentiate between the ethical responses of a state, a government within their sphere of authority to crime and the individual responses that we have to, let's say, persecution or injustice that we may experience at the hands of godless men. There's two different spheres. Mm -hmm. So real quick, an individual has not been authorized by God to execute another individual for a capital crime. This is not an individual ethic. I don't have the authority to, to form an execution squad to execute serial killers. That is the job of the state. As an individual, when I experience persecution or hardship, I am responsible for my behavior. Obviously, I can defend myself. Jesus recommended his disciples to carry a sword with them to defend themselves on the road against burglars. But as an individual, if I'm personally offended, I I am supposed to turn the other cheek. I I am supposed to go the extra, carry the carry the luggage the extra mile, etc. But these are not we we can't mix and match the ethical responsibilities of a state, a government toward crime and the individual ethics 
of a person who's been offended for the cause of Christ. These are two different categories. They're, they're, they're not the same. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of putting it into a, effect, many have argued, well, we can't, we can't have capital punishment laws because no one agrees on what you should be punished in this way for. Well, I disagree. And then in the old Testament in our uh, Hebrew scriptures, there's a list of things and we'll look at those in a little bit. If you commit a, you're put to death. If you commit B, you're put to death, but not for everything. Okay. Not for everything. So for example, in 1814 in England, three boys between the ages of eight and 11 were hanged for stealing shoes. We're not talking about those kinds of crimes. Mm-hmm. People could be pushed into criminal activity because of desperation. If our food supplies fell apart and people start stealing loaves of bread in order to get by, well, we're not going to be putting them to death for that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, desperation, desperate circumstances often results in desperate measures. Still others would say capital punishment. That's just Old Testament. By the way, I love that that line. It's just Old Testament. It's just Old Testament. Well, don't be so dismissive of the Old Testament. If you didn't have the Old Testament, you wouldn't have the New Testament. And if you had the New Testament without the Old Testament, you wouldn't understand half of it. And don't be so trite to just dismiss all the laws of God recorded in the Old Testament as expired. That's not true. Many of them are repeated in the New Testament. Many of them are transcultural. Some of the Old Testament is not even Old Covenant. Mm -hmm. See, people use the word Old Testament and Old Covenant interchangeably. Genesis is not Old Testament. It's in the part of our Bible we call the Old Testament, but it's it's essentially pre-Old Covenant, much of it. So, especially in the early chapters of Genesis, we, we encounter a lot of transcultural principles, transcultural legal precedents that are to endure for all of time. Um, you'll even hear people in the tithing argument say, well, tithing is just Old Testament. Well, no, Jesus commended it positively in Matthew's gospel. And uh, Abraham was tithing to Melchizedek before the Old Covenant, mm-hmm. uh, the Mosaic Covenant was put into place. So don't be quick to dismiss the Old Testament. There's a lot of law and principle there that still applies. And then finally, some would say it's opposed to the gospel. Christ became our ultimate capital punishment. He died for our sins so that we didn't have to. Well, I understand when it comes to our offense before God and our standing before God that Jesus Christ was the penal substitutionary atonement for our sins and that he died for our sins, past, present, and future. But we still live within a social order and there are still rules that govern the behavior between groups of humans and other humans and certain things. There there have to be certain laws in place to govern that behavior and to punish that behavior. So, It's true. Someone could theoretically be a Christian who's been, who's had their eternal penalty for their sins paid for by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, but then commit a certain act that requires the state to take their life prematurely. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we have to be careful not to say, well, because Jesus Christ ultimately died for our sins, we don't have to. That's like saying, well, I can speed I can steal, I can lie, I can rape because ultimately Jesus Christ is my capital punishment and died for my sins. It's important to differentiate between Christ's penalty for our sins in terms of our standing with God and the just penalty penalty for our crimes in terms of our standing with the state. Mm-hmm. So those are some, again, I know we've moved quickly you might want to listen to this podcast on slow mo <laughs> for once you played on half speed. <laughs> yeah. I usually speed them up, but uh, those are some of the basic arguments that abol- abolitionists would present. Yeah. And that's, that's actually quite a lot of arguments. That's it more is. than I had recalled just uh, thinking ahead of this about that. Um, and there's some really good pushback, but let's look at the other side now. So what are the common arguments for capital punishment? So on the retentionist side, meaning those who would favor capital punishment, there are many, many arguments as well. Now, when we say favor capital punishment, we're not rubbing our hands together saying, hey, who's getting executed today? Mm-hmm. So we're not in favor of it in the sense that we were jumping for joy over it or we want to see it. But from a biblical perspective, a retentionist would say there's biblical arguments that 
instruct us to exercise capital punishment as a state against criminals, and it's the just and righteous thing to actually do in light of the crime that's been committed. So ultimately, one could argue that it is sort of tied to the gospel because, again, the wages of sin is death. The ultimate penalty and punishment for sin, think about this, for crimes committed against God, which often also happen to be crimes committed against people, is death. So intrinsic to God's way of operating in the world and God's response to sin is the penalty of death. So for someone to argue, for example, that, oh, it's immoral for a life to be taken as a result of a criminal act, that's a hard position to take when intrinsic to the gospel, God himself takes life as a result of sin. So there's a tie in there. It's not, it's not in the same category. So again, one is the ultimate spiritual consequence for our offense to God. And the other is a civil response to our offense to God, but also our violation of the principles and rules that govern our interaction with one another. But that principle, I want to emphasize that principle that in the, um, eternal decrees of God and in God's response to sin, he does himself exact the ultimate penalty death for certain behaviors. So when God then is laying down like transcultural, meaning uh, transcultural law, meaning law that's not just specific to Israel or specific to a church. And we find some of that in the earliest chapters of the Bible. So, in Genesis 9, 6, we have this transcultural law. This is before there was a nation of Israel. This is before there was a church. God says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. So if you take a life, your life will be taken. And then we have the reason for that, for God made man in his own image. The reason why life is taken when you take life is because the act of capital punishment is supposed to remind the offender and any witnesses present that life is precious and special, that we are made in the image and likeness of God. And the individual does not have the authority to run around taking other people's lives. But law, and law is generally overseen by a state, now, I know in Genesis 9, this, this state had not yet been fully formed, but the state, which generally oversees the dispensing of p- penalties for certain behaviors, they are sanctioned by God as agents of justice to take life from those who have taken life. This is a justice issue, and, it, and it's an, intrinsically, it's an acknowledgement that we are made in the image and likeness of God. So the inverse must also be true. If a person goes and takes another person's life unjustly and you do nothing about it, what you're actually saying is that person isn't made in the image and likeness of God and they don't matter. Mm-hmm. Now, once we get into Mosaic law, that doesn't disappear. So in Leviticus 24, 17, it says, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. So based upon that alone, and there's many passages under the Mosaic law where the death penalty is advised for certain crimes, within there, then you can't say Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, that there's a contradiction in Scripture or that, well, it says we can't murder, so we can't take someone's life who's taken another life. No, pre-Mosaic covenant, pre-Abrahamic covenant, God advises it. It's advised again under the Old Covenant's uh, laws. So the Exodus 20 passage, if you study the language there, is best understood to be a reference to the unjust taking of life. You you just go get angry at someone and kill them. You're not allowed to do that. But if the state says, wait, you killed someone, we're going to kill you, then they are justified in doing so. So there's that biblical principle of lex talionis, the, the, the law of retribution, which Jesus forbids as an individual ethic. Jesus forbids us. Jesus says in the gospel of Matthew, you've heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, but I say to you, 
And then he goes through that list, carrying the luggage an extra mile, turning the other cheek. This is our individual ethic. Our individual ethic is not to be retaliatory, uh, but to permit ourselves to suffer uh, injustice and um, to be pushed around a little bit and to be harassed or persecuted for our faith. But again, that, that's a different category. We're talking here about biblical law. I mentioned this earlier, Chris, but it's also false to say that capital punishment doesn't deter crime. It does deter crime. Of course, we can't measure it with precision because someone might be thinking about killing someone else and then say, well, I'm not going to do that because I'm going to end up dead myself. Yeah. We can't get into people's minds and measure that statistically. But what we can measure is reoccurrence rates, at least on a federal level. So again, about 12% of women and 24% of men who've been incarcerated for a federal crime, whatever it might be. So this is going beyond crimes that may be justly deserving of the death penalty. Reoffend within two years of being released from jail. So rapists, pedophiles, mm -hmm. whatever it might be, even bank robbers, they're out within two years. About a quarter, about a quarter of men are going to be back in, in the clink at some point. That's of the ones that got caught. Yes. And that's why uh, one thing I was reading said that they figure about 88% of sex offenders reoffend, but only 24% of them are if they're male and 12% of them if they're female end up back in jail. So more people are reoffending than are necessarily caught. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting, just as a sidebar, a lot of, especially sexual crimes are committed by people who have had sexual crimes committed against them, who've had sexual crimes committed against them. So you also... Certain criminal yeah. behaviors breed more criminal behavior in the next generation. Mm -hmm. And if you remove the perpetrators of these crimes from the population, it is logical to assume that those rates will decrease because they're, they're abusing or molesting uh, a lesser number of people. Mm -hmm. Which is interesting that that argument, just a sidebar here, some people use that argument for people who are pro-choice with abortion because they're like abortion actually decreases criminal rates because the people that are aborting would raise criminals. Right. But the problem is the child hasn't had the opportunity to live and choose that and be guilty of like the capital punishment for the crime they committed. Right. Yeah. Not, and just to be real simple about it, you're still not permitted to take unjustly human life and aborting a child is the unjust taking of human life, regardless of how that child turns out. Can you mm -hmm. imagine someone arguing, well, if we knew that Hitler was going to do what Hitler did, we should have encouraged his mom to give, to have an abortion. Mm -hmm. Well, pragmatists might argue that way, but you would not have any right or biblical precedent to do that That's right. until a person commits the sin. They're not guilty of the sin they're committing. Mm -hmm. uh, Mosaic law also illustrates it. So time and time again, in uh, various passage uh, passages of the um, Old Covenant scriptures. So I'm just going to give some here. So Leviticus uh, 21, Leviticus 22, sorry, Exodus 21 and 22, and then Leviticus 20, Leviticus 24, Numbers 35, Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 21, Deuteronomy 22, Capital punishment is prescribed for murder, kidnapping, the killing of a pregnant woman and an unborn child, the neglect of a dangerous animal leading to the death of a human, rape, blasphemy, adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, fornication, incest, striking your parents, sorcery, idolatry, inciting people to idolatry, uh, avenging a death acquitted by law, false testimony, so there, there are all, all sorts of um, crimes that a person could commit that the word of God sanctions the death penalty for. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it's pretty difficult to just make this cart. Well, we, we can't put people to death because, um, you know, Jesus says you should turn the other cheek. Well, what about this long list of behaviors that God does sanction the death penalty for under the Mosaic law? What do you do with that? You can't say it's inherently wrong. You have to somehow argue 
that God changed his mind or that something dramatic changed from that time till, till the present. And you'd have to appeal to the New Testament for that. And I'm going to appeal to the New Testament to show that the New Testament actually sanctions capital punishment by the state. Another one would be just the sheer financial cost. Now, this isn't, this is just one of many arguments, but it apparently it costs the taxpayer about $115,000 a year to incarcerate one prisoner federally. Per year. Per year. Wow. Well, you got to add up the, the, the salaries, the cost of running the institution, the administration, the food, you know, the, 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 the space it has to be built. So it's about $115,000 in Canada to incarcerate someone. And let's say you take someone that's murdered another person and you incarcerate them for 25, 30 years. That, that's a lot of money to invest in someone that's taken life and has caused great destruction to society. So there, there's an absurd cost associated with it. Uh, we also need to understand that while Christ did abolish certain ceremonial aspects of the Levitical law, that what we see reflected in the Levitical law, so back to our Leviticus 24 passage, for example, isn't mosaic in nature. It's not old covenant in nature. It's a basic moral principle, which God laid down in Genesis nine, and which is illustrated in God's response to Cain's murder of his brother in Genesis uh, four. So we, we have to be careful not to just say, well, that that's old covenant. I want to take, take us next to a passage that's perhaps the most quoted passage of the of the whole Bible over the last two years, and that's Romans 13, mm -hmm. which has been yep. debated about whether, you know, we have to submit to the state and all things or not. But one thing that's indisputable about Romans 13 is that the state does have some authority. And the authority that the state has is to wield the sword. That's not a little six-inch sword used for opening your mail. That sword represents justice and the use of that sword says to punish the evildoer and reward the righteous. So in that context, God using the image of a sword to punish the evildoer, again, this is not spanking someone with the broad side of a sword. This is a reference to execution. So the state has been granted authority. They have in their hands a instrument of execution to punish the evildoer. Mm -hmm. So this, we, we don't, again, to reemphasize, we're not saying that an individual or a church or a business has the authority to exercise capital punishment, nor do you have the authority to, to enter into vigilante justice and to chase down criminals, for example, with some sort of a you know, posse at night and execute pedophiles. This is, the in, a, in a just and properly ordered society, this is the responsibility of a state. And the st state here in Canada obviously doesn't take that seriously. Uh, the the penalties handed out for the most heinous crimes are abysmal, actually. Mm -hmm. But the that's New Testament. Paul, the Apostle Paul, who every Christian loves, teaches here that the state government has the right to execute the evildoer if they obviously have committed a crime that's that's worthy of that. Um, I kind of commented on the objections to Cain and David uh, earlier. The other thing that people need to keep in mind is that all people die some way, someday I should say. And at, like at the end of the day, we all die, right? At, and at the end of the day, we all die for the whole collection of sins that we have committed and because we're sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, and we bear their guilt as well, the when it comes to capital punishment, this could actually be, in some respects, favorable to the criminal because the knowledge of imminent death actually has the potential to position a person to consider spiritual matters a little sooner than uh, natural death which, you know, we, we never know when that's going to happen. So just, this is a pragmatic argument. It's not a biblical argument. But if I know at some point I'm going to die, and let's say I'm not a Christian, I'm like, well, I, I, I'm going to get right with God at some point, but chances are I'm going to be around for another 30 years. 
I can delay, delay. But if someone says, look, you've committed a heinous act, you are worthy of death and you're going to be put to death on this date, that could hasten my sense that I need to get right with God. So there's, there's, there's lots of ways to still minister to people that are guilty of death because ultimately, while it's ultimately we advocate for the proper dispensing of justice in the here and now, but we also do want every soul to come to faith in Jesus Christ and be saved and ultimately be redeemed mm-hmm. because all of us is guilty or are guilty of spiritual crimes that will lead to our ultimate death apart from Christ. Responding to the criticism that botched executions should result in um, the abolition of capital punishment, uh, I would just say we have to allow the principles of scripture to inform better practice rather than throwing the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in any area of life in a broken society, you can have people lie, the evidence can be tampered with, whatnot. Mm-hmm. We don't then say, let's dispense with the whole judicial system. You know, we're not giving out any speeding tickets because we found one out of a thousand radar guns or have a glitch in them. We're not going to incarcerate thieves anymore because, you know, we discovered that one person was falsely accused. So, if, if we use the argument, well, there can be glitches in a judiciary system, which we know, thus the harsh punishment for bearing false witness in a court of law and the Ten Commandments, yep. the whole judicial system falls. So unfortunately, while we all have concerns, I think with the judiciary system, there still has to be a certain measure of trust in the judiciary system to properly assess Uh, what a person has done to explore the evidence and to adjudicate accordingly. Um, I would also just say that rehabilitation and justice are not the same. Uh, There's, there's a difference between the two and the primary responsibility again of a state is not rehabilitation. It's, it's to wield the sword over matters of public justice. We've already mentioned that the command not to murder and the Decalogue is is not the same. It's dissimilar from the multiple passages of scripture that advocate for capital punishment. That capital punishment, yes, can be barbaric, but should also reflect the nature of the trespass. And then finally, what I want to do is I want to I want to just explore for a little bit um, this whole idea that I presented earlier between sort of that individual ethic for how we respond to a personal offense and how the state has been granted authority to wield the sword and to execute the evildoer, mm-hmm. okay? So le- I wanna read uh, from Matthew 5, and this is you know a pretty significant passage that people often refer to. So Jesus says in verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. And then give to the one who begs from you. Don't refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, this is an interesting passage because... Many Christians will kind of look at this and say, well, this, these are the words of Jesus, which they are, and they're authoritative, which they are. So I must by necessity then be passive in re- with regard to any sort of violence, with regard to war, with regard to capital execution. Um, if my wife's getting beat up in front of me, my, I should just get down on one knee and pray and love on the person. And they fail to differentiate between these different spheres of authority. So we've talked about this before in our podcast that we believe in something called sphere sovereignty, which is just our language being imposed upon some principles that we see in scripture. And the idea is, is that when God orders a society, there are different entities within that society and they all have a measure of authority, but their authority is limited. So we have the sovereignty of a a family, the sovereignty of the church, the sovereignty of the state, all of those three entities are working together. A person can find themselves an employee of the state, a pastor of a church, 
and the head of his house. So you could you could be in three different spheres, but each sphere needs to be thought of as distinct. So a husband and parents, by extension, have a, a measure of authority over the raising of their children, which the prime minister doesn't have and which the pastor doesn't have. Mm-hmm. And then when you enter into a life of the gathered church, there's authority that is granted to the eldership of the church. And then when you enter into state life, there's authority granted to them. And each of them has a different role and responsibility. And Jesus is speaking here to a collection of disciples who were wrestling with this whole idea of vengeance. And Jesus pushes them away from vengeance to a new way of thinking about their interaction with their enemies. And he uses illustrations that are primarily revolve around this idea of, of being offended. So I know there's a physical one here where it says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. This is not someone that's trying to take your life. You don't step onto a battlefield and have a slapping match with some other enemy, with the other with the enemy soldier. Uh, it's much more violent. So while there's a violence to slapping on the face, it's more of an offensive thing than a violent thing. It's offensive when a Roman soldier were to walk up to a Jewish citizen and say, by law, you have to carry my luggage one mile. It's just kind of offensive. Mm-hmm. It makes you feel like you're lesser than. Jesus is like, yeah, just carry it too. So these illustrations that he gives here are not about how we respond to someone trying to take our lives or how a state should respond to someone who's going around murdering people. But it it is specific to, as Christians, when we are living our lives, we're going to be, quote unquote, attacked, meaning offended, put off many, many times by godless people. And our response to that is not to retaliate, but to to in love, bless through our actions. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't speak out against injustice. Jesus spoke out against injustice. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't call a spade a spade, like the truth, the truth, error, error. It's an individual ethic, just like Jesus was, you know, at times when he was attacked, he'd slip away in the crowd. He'd just Mm -hmm. get out of there. Other times when his disciples were being sent out, he was like, carry a sword again, not for opening the mail, but for defending yourself. But if you are, so if a Christian is out in public and they're physically attacked by a burglar, they can defend themselves. That's the principle of the sword. But if a, if a preacher is out preaching the gospel and someone comes up and throws an egg at you or a rotten tomato or slaps you on the cheek, we don't respond the same way to that. We don't get all violent. We, we step back and we say, because we're serving Christ and specifically because we're serving Christ, we're going to get persecuted at times, but we want to respond in a morally upright way. And we want to love our enemies. And part of that love for enemies is also putting the gospel on display. Mm -hmm. So that's Matthew five. So we don't repay people, uh, you know, evil for evil. Now what's interesting, if you go to Romans 12, which is obviously one chapter before Romans 13, which grants the state the sword, mm-hmm. an instrument of justice. Paul, the same writer, says, repay no one evil for evil. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give uh, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So in Romans 12, directed to the individual, Paul Paul says essentially the same thing that Jesus says. We're not into vengeance as individual Christians as we're sharing the gospel. We're not into wrath. We're not into, you know, taking people out because they didn't listen to our sermon or whatnot. Mm-hmm. The next chapter, he's giving the sword to the state. So we have to think in two different realms. What what are the ethical principles that govern my behavior as a Christian in response to offenses? And what rightful authority does the state have as an agent of God's justice to execute the criminal? And there you have it. It's not a contradiction. I just want to bring clarity to this. It's not, well, should I be violent or should I not be violent? As an individual preacher of the gospel, I don't get violent with people when I'm offended for my faith. As an individual, if I'm out in the highway and someone attacks me and tries to take my life, I'm allowed to defend myself. Mm -hmm. As a state, if the state looks out and says, we have some of our citizens are killing people, we have the authority granted to us by God to take their life through a 
proper um, judiciary process, ultimately leading to capital punishment. Okay, so you've outlined a lot of great passages, um, and in some ways, I feel like I'm back in Bible school, and that was like a, a good lecture on capital punishment. <laughs> okay, so thank you. That's yeah, good. Um, I think there are a few more passages, maybe to to dig into before we um, conclude, but maybe you want to just highlight some of those because I know you've got some that you're thinking of. Yeah. So I, I just want to kind of maybe reiterate this a little bit. I would encourage people to study these passages for themselves. But again, one of the critical ones is thou shalt not murder in Exodus 20. I just want to say that it's important for us to understand that passage is not a blanket prohibition against the taking of any human life under any circumstances. Mm -hmm. That passage is obviously given originally to Israel and the command is very specific to not murder intentionally. The specific word there to not murder is used 49 times in the Old Testament. And it always refers, as best as I understand it, to premeditated murder. That is, there are different words, different Hebrew words used for killing, for example, killing of an animal or unintentional murder. Uh, but the kind of murder that's being forbidden here is a person in rage goes out and deliberately takes someone else's life. That is justly deserving of capital punishment. Now, if as a result of your careless behavior, so you're doing like 200 kilometers an hour down the 401 and you drive right through some pedestrians that have stopped on the side of the road to change a tire, that arguably is, is deliberate homicide. But if you're obeying the law of a land and you're out driving and as a result of it, there's a collision and someone's life is taken, it's not like we're saying you should be put to death or you're guilty in the same way that an ax murderer is or a person that kills their spouse. Mm -hmm. So really, really important. Uh, murder is wrong. Matthew 5, 21 teaches that, but doesn't preclude capital punishment exercised by a state. Okay, doesn't doesn't preclude it. And then if someone's looking for, well, what crimes in God's, God's laws are worthy of capital punishment, I'll just refer you back to all those passages I mentioned from Exodus to Leviticus to Numbers to Deuteronomy. And there are many different laws, even outside of the intentional taking of human life, that are justly deserving of capital punishment. But it's really important that it has to be proven. So we have a required proof of conviction requires at least two witnesses, not one person, but two bona fide witnesses. That's why we do not bear false witness. Mm -hmm. When the 10 commandments talk about not bearing false witness, that has application to all lying. But in that context, it's specific to the juris, uh, to jurisprudence, to the, mm -hmm. to law, to the legal structure that if two citizens come forward and say, I saw Bob shoot Bill. We cannot in any circumstances permit a culture to allow perjury lying mm -hmm. in court because the consequences are significant. Yeah. Uh, one other one that's interesting is in John seven and uh, John eight, the Jews basically bring a woman to Jesus caught in adultery and they basically say, well, you know, one of the penalties for adultery is death. So can we stone her and uh, kill her? And Jesus basically says, um, well, if any of you is not guilty of any uh, sins, uh, why don't you stick around and do it? I'm just summarizing. But if not, you should probably take a hike. And he, he waits for a bit and they all leave. So people are like, well, that, that proves that under Old Testament law, adultery was punishable by death and Jesus lets her off the hook. Uh, well, no, the, the, the crucial thing to understand here is that her accusers bring her to Jesus, not because they're interested in justice, but because they want to entrap Jesus. Mm -hmm. So the scenario is not truly a justice issue. They're not concerned with justice. And the stricken consciences of the accusers eventually is exposed when they walk away and 
kind of put the stones down. Now, one other point that's important is according to the law, stoning is not required unless she was betrothed or married. And the text doesn't say what her marital status is. Hmm. So it could be that they're actually going beyond the requirements of the, the old covenant law by requesting that Jesus sanction the stoning of this woman. I also want to point us to Acts 25. I mentioned that earlier. And Acts 25, 11, uh, Paul is being accused of a potential capital offense, which he was which were trumped up charges we discover, which are false. But here's what it says in Acts 25, 11. This is Paul speaking. He says, if then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. So it would appear there that Paul is acknowledging that if he was being convicted for something that is deserving of death, then he should be put to death. So in that respect, there's an inference that he is favorable toward capital punishment for certain activities that he is being accused of participating in. Now, we know that he wasn't guilty of that. So he's not offering himself up to mindlessly be put to death. But I think there's some strong evidence there that Paul's in a position for potentially being put to death if, that's a key word, if the charges of speaking evil and so forth against the high priest are true. So this is a situation where, um, you know, Paul seems to give a tip of the hat as he does more explicitly in Romans 13 to the idea that certain uh punishments or certain crimes result in justly result in death. So Chris, I, I just, I would say that while certainly in our can our country, it's a bit of a moot point because we don't practice this. We should be advocating for proper punishments that align with the nature of the crime. And I, I was fascinated by that statement that a very pro-life friend of mine put out, someone said, well, uh, wouldn't it be okay to abort children if uh, the child is conceived as a result of rape? And her response was, no, the rapist should be put to death and the child should be saved, which is true and biblical. And I agree with that. Well, she received all sorts of pushback because she'd mentioned, you know, alluded to capital punishment for a rapist. People get more worked up about the idea of killing through capital punishment, rapists and murderers, than they do innocent children, which is somewhat tragic and an indictment upon the nature of our culture and how far we have actually moved away Mm -hmm. from true biblical categories about justice. If if you're pro-life it doesn't mean that you're anti-capital punishment because pro-life relates to children, innocent people, average run-of-the-mill people having the right to have their lives protected as people who are made in the image and likeness Mm -hmm. of God, Genesis 9-6. But if someone's going around snuffing out the lives of those that are made in the image and likeness of God, then according to God's creational laws reinforced in the Mosaic Codes, and reinforced in New Testament passages like Romans 13, that person or those people deserve the just penalty of their crime, which is to be capitally executed. Mm -hmm. And that in and of itself is a pro-life position. It's pro-life to be pro-capital punishment because the ultimate reason why we stand for capital punishment is because we believe that every man, woman, boy, and girl is made in the image and likeness of God and their life deserves to be respected uh, from birth, from from conception, I should say, to natural death. Hmm. So as people are discussing these issues, let's also be advocating for them in the political realm and in the juris, the, the realm of jurisprudence, et cetera. Mm-hmm. That's good. Well, thank you so much for that. I think that helped to... Uh just flesh out the idea of capital punishment and think through the different things. And hopefully that'll give some people food for thought. And also 
some responses when they're in those discussions with uh, people. I can't help but think as well, it also informs our sense of justice for obviously within our, in our personal sphere where we operate, obviously we're not, you know, doing capital punishment in the home, but at the same time you realize the the weight of penalty attached to certain sins. And then you think about how we discipline those. And obviously if your child blasphemes, that's different than if they grab an extra cookie out of the cookie jar. So anyways, lots to think about. Thank you, Aaron. This has been a great episode uh, of Leadership Now that has been a blessing to me and I'm sure will be to our listeners. A reminder to our listeners, you can find this podcast on the CJXC radio, Canada's constant Christian companion. And you can also find it on the Fight, Laugh, Feast network. They have an app. You can download it. If you haven't downloaded it by now, you probably have been skipping the last part of the, uh, the podcast, but please download that. It sends you notifications when each episode of the podcast drops, and that's great to be able to get. And uh, most importantly, we'd love to have you tune in again next week to another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock.